Uh, whether we're here in the hall or at Zoom, in, uh, at a distance, we pray that your grace would instruct us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jewish author Ellie Weissel famously asserted that God made man because he loves stories. God made human beings because God loves stories. And not only does God love stories, God loves to tell stories. And one of the joys of Philippians 3 is the way Paul tells the story of his life. And I'm going to invite you tonight in response to God's word to think again uh, about who you are, where you've come from, where you're going. Our memories, our daily lives, our dreams are storied. Uh, when we think about a good life, we tell a story. When we hope for our children to live a good life, or our grandchildren, or our families, we tell a story. We love great stories, and we reflect on our lives as stories in memory. And we are storytellers. Writer Debbie Thomas tells that she and her husband would often play a game with their children where they asked the question, which story do you want to be part of? She recalls, over the years, as a family, we cycled through Narnia, Wonderland and Oz. For a while, my daughter's heroine was Anne of Green Gables. So we lived on Prince Edward Island. Our Middle Earth phase lasted for years and required many, many decisions about Tolkien's elaborate story world. Would we live in Rivendell or the Shire? Would we be elves or dwarves, hobbits or humans? Would we venture into Mirkwood or visit Lothlorien? Just the other day, my son said, I hope things happen in heaven. I hope heaven has a good story. Otherwise, it will be boring. Well, the Apostle Paul was a great storyteller. And he remembered Jesus in story. We call the story of Jesus the gospel. But it really is an announcement of what Jesus did and said and taught and lived. And in this letter to Philippi, to believers in the Philippian church, written perhaps in the late 50s or early 60s, about 25 years after Jesus. Uh, Paul tells his readers that the story of his life changed radically and he went through a restoring of who he was. In Philippians 3, 4 to 6, he talks about the Paul who had confidence in Paul. In 3, 7 to 9, he talks about the Paul who has confidence in Jesus. And then in 3, 10 and following, and we're just going to look at 10 and 11 tonight, he talks about the Paul who wants to press into knowing Jesus. So 3, 4 to 6, Paul's confidence in Paul. He says, If someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on law, faultless. Paul says, I 
used to be a person confident in myself. When he says confidence in the flesh, he means confident about my humanity. I was a confident person because when I thought about my relationship with God and my people, I was at the top of the pinnacle. I had a superb pedigree. I had certainty that I was right with God and respected by others. My achievements made me the best. I was an exemplary Jew, a true blue Hebrew, a gold card holder, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zealous Pharisee, a faultless person under law. Now, Paul wasn't just a Pharisee, he was a violent Pharisee, uh, influenced by the Old Testament stories of Phinehas, who killed for God. Paul took up the sword. He believed that in zeal and purity, he could be a violent man. This was his story and this was how he named himself. And then one day when Paul was perhaps 31 or 32 years old, that story began to change on a journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. He was on the road and he met the risen Jesus in a vision. By the time he writes this letter, he has been radically changed. Indeed, Paul's life and the story of his life has turned upside down. His is now the story of a great reversal. So the way Paul used to name himself, he now talks about it in 7 to 9 and he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Indeed, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There is a rich array of language in this passage of Scripture. And initially, Paul draws his words from the world of economics, gain and loss, credit and debit, value, invaluable. Here is Paul remembering that the way his life used to be, he now considers loss. He has gained Christ and his old way of dependency, his de Reliance on his qualifications, his pedigree, that's now loss. He is no longer a boastful man about his past life. Indeed, in 3.8, using a brutal word in the Greek, he says, everything I had previously depended on, everything I had been loyal to, is now loss. Indeed, it's garbage. The Greek word is skubalon. It's a harsh word which may be translated equally well as dung, trash, rubbish. The message paraphrases it as dog 
done. Throw it away. It's useless. It deserves a garbage bin, Paul says. It's not the way to live. There is surpassing worth, overflowing value in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he writes. All other dependencies are of no value. I have thrown them away. And that's the first kind of language he uses is this loss and gain language. But in 3.9, he also uses the language of lost and found. He says in 3.9, I have been found in him. Remember the story of the prodigal son who was lost and then found. Paul says, I've been found in Christ. In my previous life, I was lost, now I'm found. So here's a second set of images for his life. Loss and gain, lost and found. Paul has been found, he says. I no longer strive to be right with God on the basis of my own achievements, rather on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. I rest in what Christ has done and I am found in God's love. Loss and gain, lost and found. But then in 3.10, he uses another metaphor. He says, I want to know Christ. In my previous life, I didn't know. I was ignorant. Now I know. Loss and gain, lost and found, ignorant and knowing. Paul restores his life and he says now he's living a life with gain and he's been found and he knows. Knowing Christ for Paul is the story of his life. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And then I will attain to the resurrection myself when I pass from this world into God's world. What does it mean to know Christ? Well, let me understand or say what it doesn't mean. Paul is not saying when he became a servant of Christ that he sort of shut down on life. Uh, he hasn't become a cloistered monastic sort of a man who stopped doing other things and just focused on Jesus. He keeps doing everything he's doing. He's still zealous. He's traveling. He's working. He's tent making. He's church planting. But he's doing it under the lordship of Jesus. Everything has taken on a new meaning. His misplaced zeal is not burning low, it's more fiery than ever. With love for Christ, everything Paul does now, he does in relationship with Christ as Lord and leader and guide and shepherd. His life is fuller than ever, but it's full in Christ. He's living 24-7 in the power of resurrection, and in the suffering of crucifixion, participating in the story of Christ and becoming like Christ in Christ's 
death. And I've often asked myself, what was Jesus like as he was dying? I think the answer is he was utterly dependent. He was utterly self-giving. He was brave. He was resting. He was waiting. He was trusting. All of those beautiful words of dependency, he was looking forward to resurrection. But it was hard at the time. And Paul says, look, there's further work to be done. There's a journey to be undertaken. And that's what he goes on to speak about in the final part of this chapter. We might say that the story of Christ has enveloped the story of Paul. Paul lives his storied life within the storied life of Jesus. When Paul put his trust in Christ and got baptised, he didn't just believe, he imagined life now as a participation and an experience through the Holy Spirit of living as Christ lived, dying as Christ died, rising from the dead as Christ rose. And he's doing all of this because he sees his personal life wrapped up in and enveloped in the life of Jesus. This is why I think stories in Scripture are so important. They become our story. Because the story of Christ is not just another story. It's the grand story. Some people call it the meta-narrative. It's the story which wraps up all the other stories, by which all the other stories are evaluated. Other stories claim to be grand, whether it's Marx's story or Nietzsche's story or Freud's story or some political story or some economic story. But Christ says, put your story inside my story and then you'll make sense of who you are and where you're going. Let me give you an example from the series that's on TV currently called Yellowstone. I'm not recommending it to you. Yellowstone's a violent uh, series and uh, it has some very mean characters in it. So don't take this as a recommendation to watch it necessarily. Uh, But I did become hooked on it. Yellowstone is a story uh, about a very wealthy landowner in Montana. Kevin Costner plays the part. Uh, This man's name is John Dutton. He's violent. He has many enemies. He's also vulnerable with the family that he loves. We both condemn and sympathise with John Dutton. And there's been a number of series, I think, about uh, humans caught up in power, where the power is corrupting them, and yet somehow we wish that they would somehow improve or survive this corrupting sense of power. John Dutton, played by Kevin Costa, is a powerful landowner and a violent man. He owns more land than anyone else in the valley. At one point in the show, a young boy called Carter, who is an orphan whose own father is dead, is adopted onto the Dutton family ranch. Given some work to do and some shelter, and uh, he starts looking after horses and cleaning out stalls. And young Carter, who's about 12 or 13 with no family of his own, Uh, becomes enamoured with John Dutton and starts to sit and listen and learn about his life, his power, his strength, his story. 
At the end of one episode, young Carter, who's about 12, says to one of the ranch hands, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And the ranch hand says, what's that, kid? And pointing to John Dutton as he's walking away, Carter says, him. I want to be him. <laughs> That's what Paul believes about Christ. I want to be him. I want my story to be wrapped up in his story. I want to share his sufferings. I want to experience his resurrection. I want to love and live and serve and empty and sacrifice like he did. Paul sees his story as Jesus' story relived. He's like a little Christ in the way he imagines himself. Carter in Yellowstone doesn't want to be a baker or a builder or a rancher. He wants to be John Dutton. I want to be him, is what he says. Here's a young boy's imagination which has gone completely to imitation, to submission, to obedience, to faithful likeness. The story of Christ, the story we call the gospel, so captured Paul that Paul considered his life without Christ as trash. He was a Pharisee, a Hebrew, a zealous man, an obedient man, a faultless man, a confident man, a certain man. But he says, when I look back now, knowing Jesus, it was all rubbish. The story of Christ is the grounding story by which we make sense of all other stories, including Yellowstone. It's a grand story. It's an inspired story. It's the divine story, the human story. It's the ultimate story. It's the story God invites all of us tonight to participate in if we want to be disciples of Christ. Particularly in my melancholic times, I often relive the story of my life in different ways. And recently I've been with friends and we've talked a lot about our stories. I'm wondering tonight, how do you tell the story of your life? How do you remember your story? Is it a sad story, a celebratory story, a story for which you're thankful? It has regrets, it has tragedies, it's probably a mix of all of those. Are there things you wish you could change? But most importantly, what will the story be today? And from now on, what will the story be from now on? Perhaps on the 23rd, we'll look at the rest of this chapter. But Paul beautifully says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this or have arrived, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Christ grabbed him and Paul says, I want to grab Jesus. And I'm still working it out, but that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to grab hold of Jesus and go his way. I want to be him. When Paul, whose name had changed, he used to be Saul, 
tells his story in New Testament letters, and Philippians 3 is one occasion, we realise that before he knew Christ, he wasn't only a confident man, he was an angry man. I love the words he writes in 1 Timothy 1 when he tells his story. And he looks back and he says this. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. <laughs> How does that sit with Philippians 3? I used to be faultless, I was confident in the flesh, and I was zealous. Here is him writing to Timothy, and he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst. Then he says, for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. When Paul walked into the room in the ancient world, what did people see? They didn't see a confident man. Actually, they saw a weak man. He often talks about his weakness. What they saw was a thankful man, a person who had received mercy. He was a walking, talking illustration of God's patience. He was an exemplar of <laughs> immense mercy. He had been a boastful man, an arrogant person, and a broken person who counted all that now as loss and Christ as gain, and he displayed in his body God's immense patience. The church is a storied community. Um, we're baptised into the story of Jesus when we come to faith. We join with Christ and participate then in his death and resurrection. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we declare that we're the body of Christ and that we will live faithfully until he comes again. The story of Christ is a grand story. It's the story of life. And our personal stories are caught up in it now and enveloped in the story of Christ. I guess the challenge from Philippians 3 that I want to leave with you tonight is what do you want the story of your life to be from today onwards? And the story of this church, the story of our lives together. We can locate our own lives in the radical and ultimate story of Jesus. We can see him wrapping up the story of my life so that the story of his life becomes the story of my life as I work out what that means in this time and place. And this year, that's the challenge, that we can echo the words of Paul. It's a cruciform life. 
It's a Christo-form life shaped by the story of Christ. Philippians 3, take it with you and perhaps we'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love stories, that you love the stories of our lives and that you are immensely patient with our storied lives. Thank you that you took a boastful person, a confident person, and you drew him to wonder and love and faith, and sacrifice and zeal in Christ. And he embraced you, Lord, and your death and resurrection and the fullness of your spirit. So may we story ourselves today and this year in the story of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Rod. Oh, what do I want our story to be? Well, a wonderful way for us to continue to think about that is by listening in our case and singing, if you're in your own home, the beautiful song, Take My Life. And this time it's the Parker family who will be leading us in that.
Oh, thanks for that great music. Well, a lot to think about um, with what Rod's uh, brought to us tonight from Philippians 3. Um, it reminded me of um, when I was an architect working with Philip Cox and others who are leading, Philip's one of the leading architects in Australia, there's no doubt. But I know my fellow directors used to model their life on thing on people. Um, they were very dedicated to um, being designers. They looked up to their design heroes. They looked up to people in the media like Peter Fitzsimons. Um, they looked up to writers and artists that they wanted to shape their life on. And I was impressed by their dedication, really total dedication. But as Rod said, <laughs> where, where does that go? And 